Happy Father's Day to everybody. It's really interesting that when one looks back over their lives, you can sort of mark what happens in your life by looking at various events that took place. Uh, it might be your graduation from high school or university. It might be the day you became a Christian. For me, it was in January of 91. It would be the time you got married. When you got married, and you're like, oh, wow, that's amazing. This woman loves me. She's going to commit her life to me, and I'm going to commit my life to her. And then you become a dad. And when you become a dad, it, it's, it's pretty amazing. And when you look at each of these events that take place, there's always a certain sense of excitement, always a sense of joy, thinking, wow, that's absolutely amazing. And you see that paralleled throughout all of the biblical narrative. When you look throughout biblical history, you see those same sorts of things take place. Various events that took place within the nation of Israel where they experienced the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. One of the highest of highs that they actually experienced was under the reign of King David. Even Hebrews today refer to the reign of David as Israel's golden age. The golden age where they experienced the greatest of prosperity, the greatest of power, the greatest of triumphs over various nations. It was absolutely amazing. And then that second thing, that second event was closely followed by Solomon's reign. And what Solomon did that sort of put the nation of Israel on the map was the building of God's house. He was given the privilege and the blessing to build God's house. And, and, and in this, when he followed the plans that God had set out for him to build it and use the right materials and the various people to, to create this temple of God where the tabernacle was no longer used, this portable tabernacle was no longer needed because God's house had been established. And if you look in Second Chronicles chapter 7, which I have here, verses 1 to 3, we have this wonderful thing take place. It says this, As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. Verse 3, when all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement, and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. You'll notice that the glory of the Lord filled the temple, not when the temple was built. The glory of the Lord filled the temple after Solomon prayed and the temple was consecrated to God. Some of the greatest events that took place in biblical history happened in direct connection with the, the person of God's representative praying and seeking God, whether it was this instance here, whether it was Jesus at his baptism, whether it was the Peter in the book of Acts, of Acts chapter 2, when they prayed, the Spirit of God filled. And, and, and if anything, if biblical history teaches us anything about this, you think this is an awesome point in their history. You'll notice that the priests who were supposed to be in the temple couldn't even enter in the temple. They were supposed to be there, but they were so just in awe and captivated by the sheer presence of God, all they could do was bow down and worship and say, He is good and His steadfast love endures forever. Now, sadly, when things start off like this, it's good. You liken this to when you first become a Christian. 
You liken this to when you heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and were just captivated by his love and captivated by his grace and you submitted and and realized, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And you asked for the forgiveness of sin and God filled you with the Spirit. God made you a new creation. God wrote your name in the book of life and now said, welcome home, my child. You became a born-again Christian. You became a person regenerated and made, not only in the image of God, but filled with the very presence of God yourself. This here is you as the temple of God when you're born again as a Christian. Sadly, it doesn't stay like that, does it? When you read through history, biblical history, you see it doesn't stay like this the whole time. You see so many things that take place where they experience some really wonderful things, but also some terrible things as well. In this case, I could just say nothing lasts. Well, no, not nothing lasts. That's the wrong thing for me to say. Nothing on this side of eternity lasts. And, And this is what I get to look at today. You see, what happens with the people of Israel as we look at today, especially from the study that we're going to have of Ezekiel, is we're going to look at how this relationship that Israel had with God was something so personal. It was so intimate. It was so relational. It is what you experience when you know who God is, and it's all new, and it's new, all exciting, and you're so zealous and captivated by this. How it went from that to something so impersonal, something so religious. Actually, it became something so distant. So what happened? How could it go from something so close to something so far away? Actually, if we liken this to ourselves, because we are told within the scriptures that our bodies are the temple of the living God. And in like manner, we too experience the same sort of things, don't we? Where we have this wonderful closeness with God, and yet sometimes we feel distant. We have this wonderful opportunity to meet with the King of Kings, and yet sometimes it goes from being relational to somewhat religious. What happens? So we're going to look at the study in Ezekiel, and we're going to prayerfully learn from Israel their failures, their mistakes, and prayerfully apply those same things in our relationship with God that we can learn from. Does that make sense? So I'm going to open in a word of prayer, and let's go on this journey together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who loved us so much that he died on a cross, taking upon himself our sin, our guilt, our offense against you, died and rose again the third day to give us access to you as, a, as our friend, as our father, and as our king. I pray that this day as we look in your word, you might speak to each individual here, including myself, that you might help us to see what you see and give us the boldness to deal with those things that hinder our walk with you. Please teach us now by your word, by your spirit, through your love. In Jesus' name, amen. So, to provide a bit of context, so we're looking at the book of Ezekiel. This is our study in Ezekiel, and we're not going to look at the whole thing but I've taken different excerpts and prayerfully we can learn from this as we work our way through these examples. So to provide a bit of context, it has been approximately 500 years since that verse in 2 Chronicles. 500 years since the building, the consecration, and the filling of Solomon's temple. Now, since that time, the nation has gone through some major things. There has been the division 
of the nation where you had the 10 tribes of southern Israel and the two tribes of Judah, the two southern tribes of Judah. So they're a divided nation. They have forsaken their God because of bad leadership numerous times. You read through Chronicles and you read about king after king after king that they did that which was right in their own eyes. So that's the judges. No, that they did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord numerous times and then numerous times God had drawn them back by his love by his goodness by sending prophets who proclaimed God's word to them numerous times they experienced the providence and provision and protection of God whether it be a deliverance from the nation of Egypt whether it be deliverance under the Midianites whether it be a deliverance from the Philistines whatever it may have happened God was always there And even though they repented from their sins, turned to God and enjoyed peace numerous times, numerous times they would continue to turn their backs on the things of God and on God himself. That is what what has happened over these 500 years. Now, these five centuries later, we are given a narrative through the vision of God's prophet Ezekiel. And, and what happened is this, it's a narrative that looks at, I think, one of the most sad, saddest points in their history, because it's not only the downfall of the city of God, not only the downfall of the city of Jerusalem, but the downfall of God's temple, where God's temple eventually gets destroyed. The, the very thing that set the nation of Israel apart from every other nation was that God dwelt amongst his people. And people recognize this. And, and this is what makes it really sad. It's, it's not so much that the people forsook God as bad as that was. But today, what we're going to look at is when God leaves. Now, I know, please don't misinterpret what I'm going to be telling you today. But in this particular context, the nation of Israel had a conditional covenant. What I mean by conditional covenant, it was taken from Deuteronomy. If you read in Deuteronomy, I'll refer to that a little bit later. But what basically meant was this, that if you obey, I will bless. If you disobey, I will curse. And Israel had gotten to such a point of disobedience that God said, enough is enough. And they then had to experience the consequence of their choice to live apart from God. And that was having God's presence depart. So we're going to look at three points today, and I'm prayerfully, we're going to learn from Israel what not to do. First point, the fall from grace. The fall from grace. If you look at, if you ever get a chance to read through the book of Ezekiel, it's a wonderful book. It's it's one that's just full of the majesty and of the goodness of God. If you look at the sheer, like, unexplainable majesty of his greatness in chapter one. Even if you read through chapter one and you see the throne of God, you see God sitting on his throne, it it defies explanation. It defies explanation so much that Ezekiel himself has to use this phrase, it's in the likeness of. It's in the likeness of. Basically, he couldn't explain it. So he said, it's sort of like this. It's sort of like that because he was so limited in his language to be able to portray just what he was seeing in this vision of how great God is. It has already been established that they are loved by God, that they are a great nation not because they are powerful, that they are a great nation not because they have great military might, that they are a great nation because there's a, a numerous amount of people. No, they are a great nation for one reason alone, and that is because they are loved by their God. That is it. 
That is it. That is the only thing that set them apart. Their greatness and their power was found in their unique, intimate, and personal God who dwelt among them, who fought on their behalf, who protected and provided for them, who spoke to them and instructed them so specifically that caused the surrounding nations to take note. That was the relationship they shared. So what happens? In Ezekiel's day, things have changed. In Ezekiel's day, Israel had become a people of religious ceremony. In Ezekiel's day, they had exchanged the truth of their God for the false idolatry and gods of the surrounding nations. And so what he does is he gives Ezekiel an insight as to what was happening. And it starts here in Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 6. He says, he said to me, son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far from my sanctuary. But you will see greater abominations. You jump to verse 10. From verse 10 into verse 17, but we'll go here. So I went in and saw, and there engraved on the wall all around was every form of creeping things and loathsome beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel. And before them stood 70 men, wait, 70, 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel with Jahazaniah, the son of Shaphan, standing among them. Each had his censer in his hand and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up. Sorry. Then he said to me, son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark? each in his room of pictures. For they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. He also said to me, you will see still greater abominations that they commit. Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord, and behold, there sat women. Sorry, that sounded really rough. There sat women weeping for Tammuz. Then he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? you will still see greater abominations than these. And he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. And behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, worshiping the sun towards the east. Then he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? That is a far cry from where they were a few hundred years ago, maybe even not even a few hundred years ago, a far cry from their worshiping the truth of who God is. You now have 70 elders worshiping creeping things, loathing beasts. They're worshiping these things, these pictures on the wall that they have created. 70 prominent leaders are performing sacrilegious acts, breaking God's law and offending God's holy nature. These 70 elders, they're later to be known as, what some commentators believe, later become known as the Sanhedrin. This group of 70 become known as the Sanhedrin eventually. But they use this justification found there. The Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken this land. You'll all, all, oh, sorry, I I didn't actually, sorry. So you got over there, where those 70 guys are, through the hole in the wall, The Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken this land, a weak justification for accommodating sin in their lives. That's all it is. It was a weak 
justification for accommodating sin. It's a far cry from the psalmist's words. If you look at Psalm 112, verse four, it says this. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. It is in this context that Ezekiel himself recognizes somebody. He actually names him. Uh, if you look over in verse 11, Jazaniah, whose name actually means Yahweh doth hearken. Yahweh doth hearken. And he's identified specifically by Ezekiel. One person observed this. These men who are bound by their duty and office to restrain and punish idolatry, but are themselves chief among sinners. His name, Jezaniah, given as a name of praise toward God, becomes a means of driving home a point. God not only sees what is done, but hears what is said. This is what's going on within the temple of God. This place of worship, consecrated for him, is used to worship idols. These pictures. Then you have this, Tammuz. There sat women weeping for Tammuz. This was the God of fertility and new life. It was the God of spring. And so what would happen is this. Pagans in those days would weep when spring ended. And winter, so when, when spring would leave or when winter would begin, they would weep and they would wail because new life has now been taken from them. And then they would celebrate when spring would occur. That's the way pagans sing. So now you have women of God, women of God's people, weeping, crying, wailing over a false god. And they're doing this in the temple. They are in the temple of God, God's sacred place, wailing over a false god and that he is gone. But that's not even the worst of it. Because you read further on, with their backs to the temple, with their backs to, you have these guys worshiping the sun. The actions of what they had exchanged for the one true God is evident by their positioning. Where is the temple of God? Behind them. They had literally, literally turned their backs on God to worship the sun. It is, it, is, it is one of the greatest of things. They stand with their faces to the sun in worship while their backs are, on the, well, their backs are in the face on the, of the true giver of life. Once again, this is a shocking, around 25 guys facing the sun in the east. How did they get to such a point? How did they fall so far? And before I jump on my high horse and I wail on them for stupid choices, I had to check myself. And I had a look and I thought to myself, look, I might not be to that extent. I might not be standing out in front of a church worshiping the sun, but I could see attitudes evident in these guys' actions which I recognize in my own life. Attitudes that I fall into, actions that I may actually do which reflect how I am very, very similar and, and, and I could experience a similar fall of grace in my relationship with him. For example, I may not consider myself as bad as the 70 men hiding away, worshipping beasts and creeping things or idols, but I admit that I forget, well, no, that I choose, I choose to forget that God is always watching. 
God is always watching. And the things that I worship may not be a picture of, 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 of a false god. Or you know what it might be? It might be an attitude that I have towards a brother or a sister. It might be a style or a fashion that I might have. If you were here last week and listened to our brother Cameron share, it might be our go-to lines. For those who know, it might be our go-to lines that identify who we are. Those might be the things that we're actually, actually be worshiping. It may be a possession. It may be a harboring attitude of, of pride in my heart or of false humility. It might be the whole, oh, woe is me, just so I could have attention put onto myself. And what I found really interesting about these 70 guys is where were they? They were in the dark. They were in the dark. And, and they said this, they said, look, the Lord doesn't see us. He's departed far from this land. You know what happens with us? Well, when we want to get involved in things that we know we're not supposed to go get involved with, we go off into the darkness of our own hearts. We go off into the darkness of our minds. We might be in the darkness of our room, looking at a computer screen at things that we shouldn't be looking at. And you know what we say to ourselves? We say to ourselves, it's not hurting anyone. It's just me. It's not affecting anybody else. It's, it's not going to damage anything else. That's a lie of the devil. That is a lie of the devil. Doesn't matter. Sin, no matter how private it is, affects not only your relationship between you and God, but between you and everybody else. Because your relationship vertically affects everything else horizontally. That's the reality of it. You want to know what the scriptures teach? This is the first point. This is the first point, okay? Our fall from grace can come about because we think it doesn't affect anyone, for it's not out in the open. You know why that's a lie of the devil? It's because Jesus, Jesus himself teaches that everything that's done in the quiet places, everything that's done in the dark, will be made manifest in the light. Even though you don't think it, your sin affects other people. Your choices hurts others. And that's the reality of life. And this is what the scriptures teach. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 24b to 26. It says, God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care one for another. 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. I'm going to say that again. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. It's the reality of this. You hurt yourself, the body feels it. You make a wrong choice, the body feels it. And you know this. If you're, if you're married, you know, you know when you do something and it affects your partner. It might be that bad attitude that you have. And I've done this. I've done this. I've had a bad attitude. I'm not, I'm not angry at my wife. I'm not angry at my kids. I'm angry because some other thing, and I've been sinful in my attitude. And then when my parent, my parents, when my wife and my kids come around and I snap at them, who's that affecting? It affects them. My sin affected them because they became the butt of my wrong choice or my mistake or my sinfulness. It affects other people. We are a body. Romans. I think it's in Romans. Oh, I get that further on. So, look, I, I may not consider myself as bad as the 70, but it's there. That same attitude, that same selfishness, that same upholding of things that are not God, that's there. 
That is how we experience our fall from grace. As private as you think your sin is, it affects others. It affects your wife. It affects your husband. It affects your kids. It affects your workplace. It affects brothers and sisters within the body of Christ. That's what happens. Now, we're going to come, we're going to come, we're going to come back to how we get reestablished from this fall of grace a little bit later on. But that's just the first part. That's the 70. See, I may not consider myself as bad as the ladies who mourn over a false god. I might consider myself as bad as that. But I know that I have cried of some of the dumbest things in life. I know I have wailed. You don't know what my God is? My God was sport. Here at week in and week out. But I remember when this was made evident to me in 1999. In 1999, I was at Bible, and I was even at Bible college. I was at Bible college watching the All Blacks play. I believe it was France. Oh, those French. But I remember when they were playing France in the semi-final, and I'm thinking, 1999, this is the year New Zealand will win the World Cup again. And it was early hours of the morning. My wife was asleep next to me. I'm watching the TV. All the kids were asleep, and I'm watching. It's all quiet. And New Zealand lose. New Zealand lose. Do you hear that? New Zealand lost. And I cried. I'm one of the women crying over a false god. There was no eternal significance. There was no eternal value, but I'm crying. Like, I'm, I'm like, I, had to, I had to hold back, my, hold back the noise while my wife was trying to sleep, but I'm crying. And then God struck me and said, what are you crying for? And I'm like, because New Zealand lost. How stupid is that? But that, and now look, you may not cry over the All Blacks losing, that is fine, but you find something as dumb as that. You, I guarantee you look through your life, you examine your heart, you'll find something as dumb as that that you have weeped over. It might be a promotion that you missed. It might be a car that you couldn't buy. It might be a status that people didn't recognize. That is how we show that same attitude of heart. See, it's where I analyze and give personal opinion on things that, that aren't really valuable. This is, how, this is how the people of Israel fell from grace. This is how we can fall from grace. And this is the second part, that our fall from grace can come about when we place value or elevate something to the same level as God. Because that's what the ladies did. That's what I did. And I'm sure that's what we all do to some extent. Man, it might be your grandkids. It might be your children and their success. I encourage you to listen to Cam's sermon last week just to have a listen to that because he lays things out really, really clearly. This is when we put things and elevate them with such value that have no eternal consequence at all. And that's what we do. In Isaiah chapter 45, verses five and six, we read this. I am the Lord and there is no other besides me. Sorry, and there is no other besides me. There is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other, no other. Something to really sort of consider, that if you start placing value on things on the same level as God, well, God's not a God that deals with competition. He is a jealous God and he'll deal with it. If if, if that becomes a focus of your heart and of your life, then he might say, I want to take that away. 
Now, I, I remember, just a quick side note, a few years ago, I remember a young fellow says, I can't worship a God that demands my worship. I can't worship a God that will sit there and say, you have to worship me and love on me. I can't worship a God. That sounds so conceited. That sounds so selfish. Well, hang on a second. And the more I thought about it, I said to the guy, well, think about this. We kick up a stink if somebody plagiarizes. If somebody takes a sample of music and uses it on something else and claims it as their own, then we kick up a stink. Pharrell Williams did this with the song Blurred Lines. He took a sample from a Marvin Gaye song, and they, I think he had to pay out millions of dollars to the, Gaye, the Marvin Gaye family because of that. Hang on, but we don't complain about that, do we? Somebody writes something, somebody writes something, and they put their name to it, people kick up a stink. So now you can't do that. You can't take the acknowledgement of somebody else and use it as your own. You can't do that. That is unjust. People don't have an issue with that. And I said, God is merely after the acknowledgement that he rightfully deserves. As the creator of all there is, as the giver of life, as the Lord of all, of all creation, as the sovereign one who rules, that's all that is. That's not a demanding of worship, it is acknowledging of who he is. That's not being jealous, and that's not being, that's not being conceited. So if somebody can kick up a stink over a song, or over something written, then how much more is God worthy of such acknowledgement and the reason why he is demanding of our worship. That makes perfect sense. And so that's the reason why. That's how we can fall from grace. Now, the last one, I might not be as bad as the, the 25 guys that worshipped the son, but we, we do the same sort of things. Okay, I know people who will base everything they have and everything they are on what they do that provides for them. So the sun was worshipped back in the ancient Near Eastern religions as a provider and a giver of life. These men turned their backs on the true giver of life to worship that which God created. And, and that's what they do. Now, we, we're not like that, but we might worship our jobs. We might worship that which provides for us. We might worship our skill in the garden to, to, to grow something. We might worship our physical ability to be able to do or, or, or to go out there and, and do things that no one else has been able to do. We might use that as, as our means of life source. Well, this is once again is how our fall of grace happens. It can come about when we think we are sufficient in our own selves or resources to be the ultimate provision. Isaiah 42 verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Now, while we may not be as out and out idolatrous like the children of Israel, our hearts are just as deceitful, just as desperately wicked, just as sinful. If anything, our danger in this fall from grace is disguising our failings in religious language and pious activity. That's what we can do to make ourselves look good. See, in this fall of grace, I can see why God has sought to leave. But even in his departure, he manifests his long-suffering, his compassion, and his grace. Second point, the grace in leaving. You might sit there and say that seems contradictory, but you know, from a New Testament perspective, we can look at this and think that's somewhat heretical. God is a God who's leaving. God is forsaking his people. But remember, this is an Old Testament covenant. There was a, it was a dispensation referred to as the Mosaic covenant in which was the conditional 
covenant. It was in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 26 through to 28, which says, if you obey, I will bless. If you disobey, I will curse. Now, because of the people's fall from grace, it wasn't God forsaking them, it was the people forsaking God, we see the consequence of that choice. Sin always demands payment. Romans 6.23 says that. That payment is death. Sin always costs. But we see the consequence of this choice, and that is departure of the Lord's glory, the departure of the Lord's presence. Even in his departure, though, the Lord reveals his grace by giving time to the people so that they might turn and repent. Step one. Step one. Chapter 10, verse four. The glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house. And the house was filled with the cloud and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. First thing, in the Holy of Holies, the presence of God dwelt. The presence of God moves up there and moves out to the threshold. He's on the threshold of the temple now. He doesn't just go up and leave. He gets up and he moves out. Step two, verses 10, chapter 10, verses 18 and 19. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. Not many he went back, but the cherubs had moved over to the gate. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of God of Israel was over them. So they went from the threshold, they moved out to the eastern gate. Okay, so you've got it so far. Step one, moved into the threshold. Step two, he's now at the eastern gate. Chapter 11, verses 22 and 23. All right. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. So the Spirit of God moved up from the, from the Holy of Holies, went to the threshold. From the threshold, he moved out over to the east gate. From the east gate, he moved out of the city over onto the mountain that was next to it. He didn't just up and leave. He got up and not once, not once did anybody say, hey, the glory of God's moved. God was trying to represent to the people that he was not in his rightful place within that city, within that nation. And so he got up and he moved so that somebody would recognize, so that somebody would see. He says, I'm not in my rightful place in my nation. And in doing this, he revealed to the hearts of the people that they had truly forsaken him. They had truly turned their backs on the God who provided for them, who protected them, who guided them, who delivered them, who, who saved them from oppression, who, who, who actually freed them, liberated them from slavery. That when nations would come and, and oppress them, he would liberate them and set them free. So it makes sense when God poses this question in the book of Jeremiah. Book of Jeremiah chapter two, I think it's verse four, says this. God said, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? Have you ever thought about that question? Have you ever actually had a relationship breakdown and you've gone to somebody and said, what have I done wrong? What have I done wrong? If I've done wrong, I'll seek to repent. I'll seek to sort that out or whatever it is. God's asking the nation of Israel, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong for you to go somewhere else? What did I do wrong for you to leave? 
And what's really interesting, I, I remember there's a book, I would encourage husbands to read this book. Uh, John O read it. It's called Do Yourself a Favor. Husbands, do yourself a favor, love your wife. And he gives an illustration within this book. He says about how this marriage, this, this wife eventually, this wife eventually just has enough. She has enough and she just, she goes, that's it. And she packs up and she starts leaving. Her husband walks over and says, honey, what's wrong? It wasn't the fact that she just all of a sudden decided, boom, I'm out of here. What happened was it was over years of little things that weren't right that the husband was not willing to address. Little things that accumulated over time. Little frustrations that eventually she sat there and said, ah, that's it, I'm gone. And the husband didn't recognize it. For him, because nothing was said, he was like, it's fine. It's not broke, so I won't fix it. Well, it was broke. The fact is he never recognized and saw the signs of how things were changing. That's why husbands, I encourage you, talk. Involve yourselves with your wife. Wives, don't be afraid to talk to your husband, please. Don't be afraid. And when they do talk, husbands, listen. Listen. I speak from experience. Listen. Okay, it, it, it's, really, it's really easy just to, and when I say listen, don't sit there and go like this. Yeah, yeah. And you're like, what'd she say? What'd she? No, listen, hear. Hear what she's saying. And then that's why the scriptures talk about, you know, dwell with your wives according to knowledge. Know, know them, okay? Um, and it's emphasized. That same attitude that God speaks about in Jeremiah, emphasized by Paul in Romans chapter 10, verse 21. God said, all day long I opened my arms to them, but they were disobedient and rebellious. All day long. But this is the grace of God in leaving. See, sin carries consequences, and here it is God leaving. But from Ezekiel's perspective, the fact that no one recognizes his departure is even worse. It's even worse. To move from one place to another, the 70, the 70 elders don't notice. Why? Because they were so consumed, and their eyes were on their own things, weren't they? The, 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 the women wailing after the spring God, when he moves from there, they'd never know. I mean... They moved over to the east gate, moved to the east gate where those guys were standing and worshiping the sun and they still didn't recognize the presence of God there. Even when they left, even when the presence of God left and went outside the city, they still didn't recognize. Why? Because they were so consumed. Their eyes were filled with themselves. Their eyes were filled with what they could get. Their eyes were filled with their own hearts, with their own desires, with how things made them feel. And that's what we do, don't we? Uh, R. Kent Hughes, R. Kent Hughes makes the comment, says that when we are so caught up with sin, the devil doesn't fill us with a hatred of God, he fills us with the forgetfulness of God. And that's what it is. That's how, that's how, and so I, I, want, I want you to think, okay, the, the reflection of the human heart and everything that they do. Now, yes, the scriptures teach for us as believers, he will never leave us nor forsake us. Hebrews chapter 13, verse five. The disciples in Matthew 28, 20, he says, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. We are told that, but this is how we might experience this grace in leaving. It may be, a loss of joy, that could be a signpost that things may not be right. It may be a lack of desire for the word of God, which may be a, a signpost. It may be your, your, your lack of desire to evangelize and tell people of the love of Jesus. 
It may be your unwillingness to restore relationships. It might be a, 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 a spirit of bitterness or unforgiveness. It, it, it might be a, a, a selfish attitude. It might be your pride. It might be spiritual pride because of your status within the church. There might be a whole stack of signposts that actually say to you, things are not right with my God and I. And we need to have the courage that when God shows those things to us, that we do something about it. That, that, we, that we repent. That we turn our backs on those things. Cam last week, and I've shared this over and over again, but Cam shared last week from Philippians chapter 3, and he stopped at verse 14 when it says, I press toward the mark for the high calling of God, for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 15. Look at verse 15. Because when you look at verse 15, what it says is this, that if we be otherwise minded than this, if we have any other mind other than pressing toward the mark, it says this, that God will reveal this even unto you. So basically he's saying is this, that if you've got a different goal that you're aiming for, God by his spirit will show you. And when he shows you, you've got to do something about that. Joe, you're, you're proud. Okay, I've got, I, need to, I need to do that. Joe, don't, don't go for the that, 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 that's temporary. Go for the eternal. You've got to be bold enough and brave enough and courageous enough to do something about that. These are things that could mark and reveal our lack of power, our lack of zeal, our lack of enthusiasm, our lack of excitement. Why? Because we, as the Scriptures teach, may have been guilty of this, resisting the Holy Spirit, Acts 7, 7 verse 51, or quenching the Holy Spirit, 1 Thessalonians 5, 19, or grieving the Spirit, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. This is what we might be doing, that when the Spirit comes and says, Joe, I want you to do, and you resist. No, 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 I don't want to. I don't want to. You might quench the spirit when he says, don't look at this. Don't be on the computer doing things you're not supposed to be doing. And you quench that. You lay that to the side. You quench it. You douse it. You, put the, you live a sinful life that douses the fires of, of, of God's spirit within your life. And you lose that. And, and you grieve. And this is, what's, this, this is God grieving. You know what grieving means? And I've grieved. You've grieved. We've all lost people who we, who, whom we love dearly. Grief is a wail at a loss. This is what the Spirit of God does. He grieves. He feels a loss because you are not experiencing the fullness of what He desires to give you. He says, you're missing out. You're missing out. You're losing what I want to give. You're losing what I want to bless because your eyes are full of yourself. That's why. And that's, that's what happens. This is the grace of God. And you have one of two reactions. You can either, one, continue down that path and think, ah, oh, stuff it. I give up. I'm not going to bother. Or you can heed what the Spirit of God is saying and say, okay, Lord, show me what it is and give me the courage to deal with it. You see, Israel now suffered a lack of intimacy, a lack of closeness, and a lack of relationship because they were consumed with themselves and they didn't recognize God leaving. We too will experience the same lack of intimacy, the same lack of closeness and the same lack of relationship if our eyes are totally consumed with us. And so we, we need to have the courage to ask God to show us. But see, this has been pretty, pretty full on. I'm sorry if I've just sort of like felt like, oh, bad people, bad people. That's not my intent. I conclude myself in this, but this is what's really exciting. Even though Israel experienced the fall from grace, and we do too as well, 
And even though that grace gives opportunity to repent through his long suffering and his mercy, it is when we read further that it is that same grace that restores. It's that same grace that repairs, that reconciles. I'm not going to linger much on this reality, but to provide a little context in the story, while he was a captive in Babylon, Ezekiel was a captive of Babylon, Ezekiel experienced these visions of Jerusalem's apostasy and disobedience. And that, and that happened between, like, he, he went there between 593 and 571 BC. That's when, that's when uh, Ezekiel was there. So his visions began before the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. See, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple happened in 586 BC. So what happens is this. He's there. He sees the apostasy of Israel. Then he sees the destruction of the temple. Now God gives him a vision of restoration. Now that all the people have been taken captive, all the people are on a foreign land, everything that they knew, everything that they understood, everything that they thought gave them their identity had been done away with, and it's now that they receive a vision of restoration. And I think this is what's really cool. And God's correction. If you look at Ezekiel 37, which talks about the valley of dry bones. See, everything was gone, everything was ruined, and now that valley of dry bones, that is a message of hope. That is a message of hope. By the time this vision came, everything was gone. And it was the consequence of living apart from God, which you want to know what that is? Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Say that again. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap, for from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. That's the consequence. But when you read through this chapter in chapter 37, you see God at work. 37 verses 1 to 3. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord, and he set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, oh, Lord God, you know. First, this is the state of Israel. This is their spiritual death. This is their fall from grace, wherein all that is seen is a view of bones, a view of skeletons. You know what this is? This is a remnant or a sign of life that used to be, of what used to actually be there. This is the state of humanity today outside of Jesus Christ. The Ephesians chapter 2, we are told that we are dead in our trespasses, trespasses and sins. And we are incapable, because of our state, of resurrecting ourselves. Just like a skeleton is incapable of resurrecting itself, that is, that is our state. As dead men, we cannot do anything. There is nothing in and of themselves to initiate a new beginning. Actually, even as Christians now within our flesh, there is complete inability to revive our indifferent, complacent, lukewarm souls. Which is why when he asks the question, will these bones live or can these bones live? Ezekiel's response, only you know. Only you know. And so in verse 7, we read this. 
So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Verse 9, then he said to me, prophecy to the breath, prophecy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Second, there is a form of life, but no life itself. All, 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 the, all the things are there, all the components for life to function, but what was absent was the breath of life, a breath that can come only from God. Bones had come together, sinew and tendons had formed and connected. Flesh had now been restored, but life was absent. That's because man becomes a living soul when the breath of God comes into the being of humanity. It is what took place at the creation of Adam. It is what's necessary to take place here now. When you look at you and I, if you're feeling indifferent, if you're feeling complacent, the breath of God, we are told within the scriptures, is God's word. That all scripture is what? God breathed. And therefore to take heed to the breath of God, what? Life is imparted. And the reason why, you might sit there and think, well, why don't I experience that life? I think maybe, maybe we need to deal with sin. Maybe, maybe, maybe we need to just be obedient. Maybe, maybe we need to repent of something. But this is what God has done to experience true life. It is, I'm, it is the greatest of importance to spend time with the Lord, to spend time allowing Him to breathe into our being that we might experience the true abundant life that we've been promised in Jesus Christ, not just the appearance of one. If you've ever watched The Walking Dead, it's a bunch of zombies, just a bunch of zombies. Perfect example of a lukewarm Christian, perfect example of a Christian that's not experiencing or connected to life. They are the, literally the walking dead. And that's what we look like when we are not connected with our vine, connected with our Lord. Last one, verse 13 and 14. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. Lastly, all this that takes place in the restoration of his people to himself, his love so great that one, he allowed them to fall from grace and giving them what they desired. But two, he allowed the opportunity to repent by revealing slowly that things weren't going right in their relationship. But three, he did so for the purpose of restoring them by grace and bringing them into the revelation of this single truth. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. That phrase is repeated in the book of Ezekiel 31 times. 31 times it is used you shall know that I am the Lord. Whether it be cities that are laid waste, high places ruined, incense and altars cut down, works wiped out, it is for that reason you shall know that I am the Lord. Chapter 6, verse 7. When the dead are slain, are slain and, and lain among their idols, it is done so in chapter 6, verse 13. So you shall know that I am the Lord. 
when people fall by the sword as God sought to correct his people in chapter 11, verse 10, it is done so with this reason, that you shall know that I am the Lord. When the people refuse to walk in his ways and to keep his statutes, he corrects them once again. Why? So you shall know that I'm the Lord. That's chapter 11, verse 12. When he disciplines, chapter 13, verse 14. When he opposes them in chapter 14, verse 8. When he establishes his covenant, chapter 16, verse 22. When he purges them, chapter 20, verse 38. He deal, when he deals with his people, chapter 20, verse 44. And he places his spirit in them to restore them, chapter 37, verse 14. And it is done so for this reason that you shall know that I am the Lord. That's it. This is how grace restores when God is placed in his rightful position. He is acknowledged as such. And when he is acknowledged as such, he comes down and he wipes things out and he makes you new and he transforms you and he gives you the joy and the passion and the excitement of knowing who he is. That's, what, that's all it is. That whole thing is that you shall know that he is the Lord, that it's through his grace that we are restored, that by his long suffering we are made anew. Even if we do try to do things ourselves, he continually works so that we might be able to be who he intended us to be. Yes, but it's so that we might know that he is the Lord. That's the God that we serve. This is how things change, to go from being distracted with the ways of the world and being captivated by who he is and be caught up in who he is. But it can only be done as him who is the Lord works within each of our hearts and when he reveals, we do something. I wanna finish on this quote. Psalm 108 verse 13 says this, the first verse, through our God, we will do valiantly. Through our God, we, do val- we will do valiantly. This is from a friend of mine. And this is what he says. Scripture is drenched in the triumphant reputation of God. We have no excuse not to reach out to him. I'm gonna read that again. Scripture is drenched in the triumphant reputation of God. We have no excuse not to reach out to him. As we search his word, the nuggets of gold are glistening, waiting for our excavations. Abraham says, remember when he told me, is anything too difficult for the Lord? Gideon pushes his way in shouting, he used my 300 against thousands and without weapons won the day. Moses chuckles saying, I saw it all from a continuous burning bush, a sea track opening up and 40 years of supply that would shame coals. Samson taps us and whispers, I was gone, completely weak, but he leveraged my weakness and displayed his might. Gamaliel, Acts 5, spoke one of the greatest short sermons, ending with a warning, fighting God is a waste of time. This morning, a fresh reminder that as these last hours wrap up, they call us to hold onto him more tightly because of God before us, who is against us. Israel's history and our experiences show how easy it is to white out the through God and operate with we shall do valiantly. Time to correct his promise today. Through our God, we will do valiantly, yes. But that means we as a people, if we have fallen from grace, recognize that same grace will seek to restore us because through him, we'll be able to achieve. I'm not going to ask the worship team to come up. I just want us to close in prayer. And if you want something to be prayed about afterwards, love for you to come at the front. 
we would love to pray. If there's, if there's issues of sin in your life that you need to repent from or do you want help for, if, if there are bad attitudes or bad heart that you have towards someone else within this church, if there is selfishness or pride or arrogance, whatever it might be, whatever is the sin that is affecting you to be distracted from the presence of God so that the glory of God might fill your temple, then please come up. We'd like to be a family, and this is a place where we can pray for each other, where we can support each other, and we can move together as a family for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you are a God that loves us so much that you give us ample time ample time to repent of sin, ample time to come before you in humility and ask for your grace to restore us. If we have gone our own way, if we have sought our own attitudes, our own agendas, our own selfishness, I pray, Lord, you will reveal that to us and we will have the courage and the boldness to deal with such things, to give them over to you so that our, our hearts, our lives may be filled with your spirit. Father, as your word says, you filled the temple that the priests themselves could not enter. Father, we ask that each of our lives will be less of us and more of you, that we might just come before you and say, you are good, a good, good God. So Father, we ask you to dismiss us now, that you will continue the work you began in us. You will complete that work and bring glory to your name. And We ask this in Jesus' name. Lord God's people said, Amen. amen. Thank you very much, brothers and sisters. If you want to be prayed